What a privilege it was to be asked to read God's word. If you would join me, please, and turn to uh, Matthew 9, and page is 1508. It is, I'm sorry, 1509. It is verse 18 we will start with. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak... I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. And continuing on in this next section from 27 to 34, Jesus heals the blind and dumb. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked them, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been dumb spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been done in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. This is the word of God. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 9. Verse 18 through 34 is our text this morning. One of the strangely refreshing things about the Bible in general and in Matthew's gospel in particular, is how brutally honest it can be about how messed up this world can be. Uh, If you were to judge Christianity by the paintings or the coffee mugs or the bumper stickers that we buy, you are likely to think that the Christian life is supposed to be pain-free. You know, it's supposed to be uh, always happy and positive and encouraging and safe for the whole family and all of these kinds of things which plays conveniently into the dreams and expectations of uh, life in North American suburbia. 
You know, the comfort, the safety, the luxury, intact marriages, well-adjusted kids, life as it's supposed to be. And yet, if you stick around Christianity for long enough, you quickly realize that trusting and following Jesus does not give you a pass in facing hardship in life. Uh, just uh, about 60-some miles from here, in New Bedford, Massachusetts, there lived a young woman named Elizabeth Prentice. Uh, Elizabeth was born in 1818. She was the daughter of a well-known Puritan preacher and revivalist. Uh, his, she and he, her father, was the great-great-grandmother, excuse me, his great-great-great-grandmother was the sister of John Eliot, who was the missionary to the Indians that founded Natick. So this woman comes from very godly stock. She was the daughter of a pastor. She married a pastor. Uh, she wrote a book called Stepping Heavenward, which is still in print today, uh, you know, 150 years later, a classic on growing in love for God. And yet Elizabeth was no stranger to suffering. She suffered from chronic insomnia much of her life. She lost both her second and her third children within three months of each other. First her four-year-old son, and then her newborn daughter just three months later. And after she lost her infant daughter, she wrote of her pain, empty hands, empty hands, a worn-out, exhausted body, and unutterable longings to flee from a world that has had for me so many sharp experiences. You know, because we live in, in what we call a fallen world, a world uh, where God's original design has been twisted and corrupted because of human rebellion in the beginning, and such that the very fabric of creation is torn under the curse. Because we live in a fallen world like that, suffering sadly finds its way into every human story, Christian or not. The Bible does not ignore this fact. In fact, it talks about it a lot in detail. Our passage this morning walks us through four stories of trouble and desperation. Four people whose lives and dreams have been unraveled by various trials, death, disease, disability, and demon oppression, to be precise. And yet, while the Bible's honest and brutally honest about What's wrong, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't leave us there without a solution. There is a king who responds to our trouble with compassion and who has the power and authority to do something about it. We've seen this king throughout the Gospel of Matthew as we've been walking through this story. And this morning, what Matthew emphasizes for us as we look at these four pictures is that this same king who has the power and authority to do something about what's wrong also calls us to believe in him amid our trouble, whatever it might be, to come to him in faith, to take him at his word, even when life no longer makes sense. Jesus has the power. He has the authority to heal, but he wants us to respond to him in faith. So let's pray and ask God to open his word to us this morning. Lord, that is, is what we want. Uh, we want to hear from you. And Lord, 
you know the, the different stories that every single person brings with them here this morning. You know that there are some of us who carry longings that we have yet to even utter to another human being. Uh, pain that we live with, frustrations, um, fear. You know that there are some of us who are, are wondering why we would even waste our time thinking about when bad things happen, when life is, is so good right now. But Lord, we thank you that all of us need to hear from you this morning, that we are all in need of your grace and your mercy. And so we pray that your spirit would be at work to show yourself to us through your word, to give us eyes to see you, to give us ears to hear your voice, and to give us hearts that are ready to be changed by the healing and saving message of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage this morning begins rather abruptly uh, as an interruption in the dinner party that Matthew threw for Jesus. The same party that we have been watching the conversations unfold the last couple of weeks. Uh, So verse 18, while he was saying this, while Jesus was mid-sentence in his conversation with the, the disciples of John, while he was saying this, A ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Now we know from the Gospels of Mark and Luke, which also tell this story and and give a little bit more detail, we know this man's name was Jairus, or however you might want to try and pronounce that. We know that he was a ruler of a synagogue, and we know that this was his only daughter, that she was 12 years old. So that would be a sixth grader today in our uh, school system. Matthew leaves a lot of those details out, and he zooms right in on the girl's death. That's the main subject he wants to talk about. And there is perhaps no greater reminder of this world's brokenness than the death of a child. Um, And no parent should ever have to bury their own child. Carissa and I know that pain in a slightly muted sense in having had two miscarriages that we've talked about before. But some of you know the full depths of the heart-rending pain of what Jairus is experiencing right now because you've been there. And you know the desperation that would drive you uh, to track down the man who's said to be Israel's Messiah, who's been reported to have the ability to heal diseases. Maybe he can raise the dead too. And so Jairus bursts into the dinner party, throws himself at Jesus' feet. He cuts him off mid-sentence, asking him to come. And look at his words again. But come and put your hand on her, and she will live. He comes before Jesus, not only in desperation, he comes in faith. Put your hand on her, and she will live. Verse 19. Jesus got up and he went with him and so did his disciples. But as Jesus and his disciples are making their way to Jairus' house, he's interrupted again by another person in another desperate situation. Verse 20. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up from behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She'd said to herself, I only touch his cloak, 
I will be healed. Now, we're not told what Jairus' reaction uh, is to this delay. Uh, but even as readers, we're at first a bit nervous. Jesus is on a mission, and time is precious. In fact, as Mark and Luke tell this story with a little more precise detail, they note at this point that, that she hadn't quite died yet. And so there's no time for interruptions like this on the way. But whereas this man's fresh desperation issues from, from having just lost his 12-year-old daughter, this woman has lived in desperation for 12 years suffering from a constant discharge of blood. Mark tells us that she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. That's desperation. And more than physical pain, she lived for the last 12 years in a state of ritual impurity for ancient Judaism. Under Israel's law, uh, there were several things that could cause a man or a woman to be ritually impure, unclean, uh, even if just for temporarily. And for women, menstruation was one of those things, which meant that during their cycle they couldn't gather with the rest of God's people uh, to worship, lest the tabernacle become defiled. So, so take that and stretch it to 12 years. 12 years of pain, of isolation, of being unable to gather with God's people, of being looked down upon by others as being unclean. Again, that's desperation. So having come to the end of herself, she too seeks out Jesus. Unlike Jairus who came humbly but boldly, you know, charged in, he he came humbly, he threw himself at Jesus' feet, but he was bold. Uh, He interrupted in mid-sentence and said, you've got to come right now. Unlike Uh, His boldness, this woman comes humbly but timidly. Uh, She sneaks up behind Jesus. She hopes that he never even sees her or knows what's happening. She's afraid. Yet, like Jairus, she too comes with faith. She said to herself, if I only can touch his cloak, I will be healed. Now, It might be somewhat of a childish faith mixed with a little bit of superstition. But Jesus doesn't make her pass a theology exam before he heals her. He sees in her a childlike faith. In verse 22, Jesus turned and saw her. He said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. Jesus' compassion is remarkable. I mean, here's this woman, timid, too afraid to to speak to him face to face, and and so trying to remain hidden. Jesus looks at her tenderly in the eyes and calls her daughter. Take heart. Be, Be of good courage. My daughter. His compassion is remarkable. His power is remarkable. A mere touch and And what has plagued this woman's life for 12 long years is healed in an instant. That's incredible. And yet, perhaps more remarkable are his words. He doesn't say to her, I have made you well, though he has, and they both know it. He says, your faith has made you well. 
What does he mean by that? Jesus has the power and the authority to heal. But receiving the grace and blessings of his kingdom requires faith in him. He's not talking about the power of positive thinking. You know, if you just kind of be optimistic, good things are going to come. Neither is he saying to her, believe in yourself, as though there's something that she could have done to save or solve her own problem. He's saying, believe in me, trust me. When a doctor prescribes you medicine to fight off a deadly disease, there's an overwhelming sense in which the doctor has made you well. She's the one who figured out the problem, gave you the correct medication and the proper instructions to take it. Without that doctor, there would be no healing in that scenario. Yet there's also a sense in which your faith in the doctor makes you well also. If you don't trust the doctor and take the medication, there's no healing either. And so the doctor has the expertise and the knowledge. But if you don't trust that expertise and knowledge and actually take the medicine, then it's of no benefit to you. So Jesus is the one who has the power and the authority to heal. But we must trust him, come to him, and trust him to receive the grace and blessings of his kingdom. He wants us to believe. And that's perhaps why this first desperate situation is interrupted uh, by the second one, to highlight Jesus' call to faith. That God would allow Jairus' daughter to die, is uh, it doesn't make sense. That he would allow Jesus to be delayed in coming to minister to her makes even less sense. And yet, faith doesn't mean that we understand everything God is doing. It means that we trust him to know what he's doing, even when we can make no sense of it whatsoever. As Jesus says to Jairus in Mark and in Luke's account, don't be afraid, just believe. Just believe. And so in verse 23, we finally get to Jairus' house. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away. The girl's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Now, the scene is chaotic when Jesus arrives. Uh, the house is crowded with people who are mourning this little girl's death, um, led most likely by professional mourners. Now, that sounds like kind of a crazy idea to us, hiring people to come and grieve at a funeral, set the tone and everything, but it was pretty commonplace in ancient Judaism. Uh, in fact, the Mishnah says, for burial, even the poorest in Israel should hire not less than two flutes and one wailing woman. It's just what you did to, to grieve. And so, so Jesus sees this crowd and he tells them, go away. She's not dead. She's asleep. They don't have a clue what he's talking about. They laugh at him when he suggests that she's only sleeping. They know she's dead. And she really was dead. Jesus is not saying here that the doctor misdiagnosed the situation and mistook death for a coma. When Luke describes her resurrection, he says her spirit returned and at once she stood up. What Jesus is saying is that the death they are now grieving is not the end of this story, not yet. 
It's about to be undone. He is about to wake her from the dead. And we're not talking about zombies here either. We're talking about life returning to a body that had died so that that body is no longer dead but is now living. Verse 25, after the crowds had been put outside, he went in, he took the girl by the hand, and she arose. She got up. And news of this spread throughout the whole region. Jesus really is the king who has the power and the authority to heal, even to raise the dead for those who believe. But Matthew's not done telling the story. He moves on quickly in verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And so here we find our third portrait of desperation. Two men, disabled by blindness, helpless to do anything about their situation. And there they were, standing along the roadside, probably begging, which was about the only means of income someone would have with that kind of disability then. And, and having heard of Jesus' reputation to heal, if you go back to chapter 4 in Matthew, we're, we're told that this has been happening uh, all over. So, so they've heard of the reputation, the rumors that the God's Messiah had actually come and was actually undoing the problem of the curse and the fall. And as they're standing there, someone apparently says to them, that guy that just passed here, he's that Nazarene that's been doing all those crazy miracles. Now, imagine what happens to your heart in that moment. Here's their one chance to get in touch with the one person who can actually do something about their situation. They are running down the road, calling after him, Son of David, have mercy on us. Don't forget about us. And they catch up with him. Verse 28, when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him. And listen to what Jesus asks them. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Isn't that interesting? Sounds pretty familiar. You know, the centurion's servant in Matthew 8 was healed because the centurion had faith. The, the paralyzed man at the beginning of chapter 9 was both healed and forgiven because Jesus saw their faith. The woman's faith made her well. And now Jesus directly asks these two blind men, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you trust me? And their reply was, yes, Lord. And so verse 29, then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. It is through faith that these two blind men share in the healing work of God's kingdom. Jesus calls us to believe, even in the midst of our desperation. And again, we're not talking about some vague spirituality or looking inward with with positive attitude and resolve. Faith here looks specifically to Jesus, to him, to who he is, to what he's doing to establish God's kingdom, to make right all that's wrong in this fallen world. 
All three of these people who have come to him in these stories came to him trusting that he is Israel's Messiah. Son of David, have mercy on us. That's a phrase that, that is associated with the king, uh, uh, the son of David, the Messiah that we've all been waiting for, who's going to come and, and rescue us from our sins and, and make this broken world right again. They believed that what God had promised to do for his people in passages like Isaiah 35 was beginning to happen and that they were beginning to experience it. Isaiah 35 says, verse 4, Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue, which we're about to read, the mute tongue that's never uttered a single word in its life, will shout for joy. Jesus is the Son of God who brings this promise to fulfillment. They'd heard the reports. They believed he could do it. Faith looks specifically to Jesus. And it has to look to Jesus. Because there's no one else who's been given authority to bring about God's saving work. There's no one else who is qualified to be our king and our savior. Because only Jesus is both fully God, able to save sinners, and fully human, able to stand in our place. No one else has walked in perfect faithfulness before God the Father on our behalf and then taken on himself all that is wrong in our lives, in everyone's lives, all of our rebellion against God, the sin for which we deserve his judgment, all of the sickness and the disease, the curse of death itself, all of that. Jesus took it on himself, on the cross, in his love, and then rose victorious over all of it in his resurrection. Whatever it is that we face in life, Jesus is the one who has the power and the authority to deal with it. And he will be faithful to do it. And that's what we have to cling to in our moments of desperation. Moments when all that we can see is what's falling apart around us. The foreclosure notice, the the terminal diagnosis, the, the dreaded phone call. Uh, that you never want to receive in the middle of the night. When, when what we cannot see is, is what in the world God could possibly be doing through this or how he could possibly reverse a situation that seems too far gone or how any of this could work out for any sort of good. And yet Hebrews 11, 1 tells us that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's trusting in the unseen God who is at work in the unseen realm, who has power and authority over everything, whether seen or unseen. Faith is not about having all the answers, knowing how this is going to end. Faith is not even the absence of doubt or questions. Yet faith is not optional. Faith is what you do in the midst of your doubt. 
and your questions, your fear and your frustrations? Do you cling to Jesus, trusting him, even though this doesn't make sense? Or do I use those questions and doubts as my excuse to kind of move away from him or move on? Without faith, we have no share in his blessing. And so we cling to him. We don't, we don't presume upon his goodness, demanding that he answer our prayers in a favorable way. But neither do we doubt that he can do that. Faith is both humility and hope. It's both humility and hope. It's, it's the humility that recognizes that God is God. He's the one in charge. He's the one who gets to decide what is the right answer to our prayers, whatever fits into his plan. The humility to recognize that suffering is not an accident. As though God slipped off his throne for a minute and things kind of went haywire but that it is one of the graces that God uses to bring us to the end of ourselves so that there's more of him and less of me. Faith is humility, but it's also hope. It's hope that God is in control, that he wants to show his love and his power and his mercy to his children. Hope that the same God who made our bodies in the first place is able to remake them and to undo whatever decay is happening, that he can remove the cancer, he can take away the disease. If he can create us, he can recreate us. And believing and pleading with him to do it. But as crucial as all of those things are, we have to say this. Faith does not look for answers only in this life. Faith realizes that even when God rescues us from the situation right here and right now, all his answers will come ultimately in heaven and the new creation to come. Which also gives us perspective when his answer today is sometimes no. Elizabeth Prentice, whom I mentioned earlier, her life is a moving testimony of that kind of faith. Not just in today, but in in the world to come. After having lost her own uh, baby, she once wrote to a friend who, like her, had just lost an infant. Listen to this. How strange our children, our own little infants, have seen him in his glory whom we are only yet longing for and struggling towards. Think about that perspective. I mean, Elizabeth knew that that however painful her loss here was, it was all gain and all joy for her children, who were in the presence of Jesus. Her heart and her hope were not in this world, but the world to come. And so must ours be. And even for the characters in our story, Jairus' daughter, though she was raised from the dead, will again die someday. Just as when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he too would again face death. Jesus is not helping us escape from death. Jesus conquers death, not by helping us avoid it, but by raising us over it in the end. So, so even Jairus' daughter and all of those who are healed in this story they too are waiting for the glory that's yet to be revealed. Jesus does not give us hope for this life only. If it were so, Paul says, we are above all men to be pitied. 
Jesus gives us hope for eternal life, resurrection life, the joy of God's presence in his heavenly new creation where there will be no more death, no more pain, no more crying, no more curse. It's over. And we pray with faith amid our present suffering that God would take just give us a foretaste of that peace and healing that we look forward to, to give us a taste of it now and bring healing now into our desperate situation. We pray with faith that he would do it. But we know he will do it for all his people in the end. And in the meantime, faith continues to cling to and honor Jesus, even after we've been delivered or we've been given a favorable answer. And that's actually something that the two blind men failed to do. See, they believed that Jesus could heal them. But whether in their joy or in their short-sightedness, they failed to take seriously Jesus' warning in the middle of verse 30. After having healed them, Jesus warned them sternly, see to it that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread news about him all over that region. Now, why would Jesus not want people to know about him you know, or, or talk about his kingdom? There are whole books written about that question. Uh, but the short of it is that not everyone was looking for the kind of kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And not everyone was ready for the kind of king that Jesus was. His kingdom was not about gaining glory through coercion and power, but giving life by losing his own. And he was waiting for the right time for that, to go fully public with his ministry. So he asks the blind man not to go make a big deal of this, because his hour had not yet come. But they didn't listen. And on the one hand, you know, how can you fault them? They're so excited. But on the other hand, it raises the question of, you know, how often do we, when we're in the crucible of suffering, we we pour our hearts and our lives out to God, but then when he delivers us, we kind of go back into our old patterns of self-dependence and and self-centeredness, just living life again on our own terms, forgetting what we've just been through and what God has rescued us from until another need should arise. Faith does not forget God's grace so quickly, but it clings to Jesus day in and day out. He really is king. He really is savior. There's one more story of healing in our passage. One more desperate situation in verses 32 to 34. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Now, it's interesting, you know, to see this final story. Uh, We're not told much about the person who's being healed here. Uh, We're told that his problem's not merely physical, uh, but it's demon oppression. The, The evil one has invaded his life to the point that it's affected his ability to speak. And we're told that after Jesus casts out the demon that he was able to speak again. But we don't see any conversation between this person and Jesus like we saw in the last three stories. We don't see the condition of faith laid out here clearly as before. 
instead of focusing on the faith of the one being healed, Matthew instead draws our attention in contrast to the disbelief of those who are looking on. So there's the crowd on the one hand who are again amazed, but don't seem to connect that amazement to faith. And then there's the Pharisees, the group of religious leaders who have a way of showing up in Matthew's gospel with all of their hypocrisy and judgmental insecurity, finger on the trigger, ready to blast away Jesus with criticism. They go so far as to actually accuse Jesus of working for Satan, you know, which is a conversation that will uh, be picked up again in chapter 12. And I think that Matthew emphasizes this contrast here to drive home his point one more time, that Jesus calls us to believe, not just that he can heal, but that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the true Lord of the world. Some of us, like the crowds, find Jesus impressive, but mostly irrelevant. We like what he can do, but we don't see our own personal need for him to do it in our lives. Some of us, like the Pharisees, have done the math, and we realize that that what it's going to cost us to follow Jesus, what we'd have to say no to, and we're not ready to part with it. We're not ready for someone else, even if it's God, to tell us how to live. And yet some of us have experienced the kindness of God in being brought to the end of ourselves through some trial we would wish on no one else ever. And it has shown us his holiness, his power, his beauty. It's opened our eyes to see our sin and our brokenness and our need for what it is. It's it's shown us our true need for him and it's shown us In full color, his love and his grace poured out for us on the cross. I do not know what God has used in your life or what he will yet use to draw you closer in deeper love and trust in him. But I pray that it would not be wasted, whatever it is. That it would move us to see him for who he is, our utter need for him and his love for what it is, and that it would move us to a deeper love, a deeper faith in the one who loves us and who calls us to believe. Elizabeth Prentice once wrote, much of my experience of life has cost me a great price, and I wish to use it for strengthening and comforting other souls. Out of her sorrow came the hymn that she is best known for, More love to thee. And as I read this, let it be our our prayer as we close this morning. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee. Let sorrow do its work, send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee. Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise, This be the parting cry 
that my heart shall raise. This still its prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee. Lord, may that be our prayer and our cry. Whatever it is we face in life, whatever sorrow and sadness, whatever joy, may all of it draw us closer to you to find the satisfaction and the security that you alone can give. And may we, in our love and joy and humility, love others and share the freeing, forgiving, joyful sacrifice, joyfulness that comes from your sacrifice, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.